So the text this morning, the closing verses of Psalm 16, but we'll read the, the whole psalm together. Psalm 16, beginning of verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the, to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. In the text, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Word of God. After the sermon, we'll sing together a resurrection hymn in hymn 32. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you would find an unlikely combination. Outside the old city on the Mount that's called Mount Zion, there is this old Byzantine church building. But in the basement of this Byzantine church building, there is a Jewish yeshiva, a Torah school, where rabbis come together to study the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Old Testament as well. It's an unlikely combination, this Byzantine church building with a synagogue or a Torah school in the basement. The reason for that is that this is the traditional site for David's tomb. This is not necessarily the place he was laid. In fact, it's unlikely that it's the place where he was laid. This is a place where tradition holds it that David met his final resting place. And so many Jews and Christians as well come to this place as sort of a place of of pilgrimage year after year. As you come into this basement of this church building, there is a small cramped place, but the, the main thing there is this enormous stone sarcophagus or coffin. And over this sarcophagus, there's this purple velvet cloth that's draped over it. And emblazoned there in gold letters are the Hebrew words, David, Melech, Yisrael, Chai, Vekayam. David, the king of Israel, is alive and well. The idea is that as you come into this special place, you experience David's presence in a particular way. And so Jews in particular come there to, to pray. They come there to read the Psalms of David as well. His Legend or his, his memory is honored in a special way in this final resting place. And we can only imagine what David would have thought to see his tomb honored in this way. But if we consider the words of our text this morning, the final verses of Psalm 16, as David's thinking about death, thinking about his own grave, thinking about his own tomb, we'll see that 
It's not likely that he'd be pleased to see his tomb honored in this way. Because as David thinks of death in this psalm this morning, he looks beyond his own grave. He looks far beyond his own grave, and he sees the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He looks past his own death, and he sees not his own tomb, not his own grave, but he finds his hope. He fixes his confidence and trust in an empty tomb. And rather than fixating on his own body, which would see decay, he fixes his eyes on a body that would never be corrupted, a body that would never see decay. In our psalm this morning, David looks forward to the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that most important event that forms the heart of what we do here from week to week, from Sunday to Sunday, the resurrection of our Savior. And it changes David's whole outlook on life. We this morning have the privilege of reading this psalm with with New Testament, with New Covenant eyes. We've seen the reality of Christ's resurrection. We celebrated it not so long ago. We have the privilege of standing before and looking into the empty tomb. It's not just a future hope. It's not just a future reality. But it's a historical event. And our lives are anchored in that historical event. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection has changed everything. And so I may proclaim to you this morning the gospel of the empty tomb from Psalm 16. In this theme, with the risen Lord as our portion and our cup, we have joy in the present, security for the future, and pleasures for eternity. When we have the risen Lord as our portion and cup, we have joy in the present. Now, as we come across our text in verse 9, you'll notice it begins with this most important word, therefore. It alerts us that we need to understand what comes before our text in order to fully understand this beautiful confession of faith that David holds before our eyes this morning. So we have to go back to the beginning. And we see from the very beginning, the psalm opens with a striking cry. David says, preserve me, O God. Save me, God. There's something desperate about this opening cry. David is in desperate circumstances. He's in desperate need of God's protection, in desperate need of God's care, his refuge. And we're not told exactly what his circumstances are, but clearly death is on his mind. You see that in the verses of our text. And maybe some of the psalms in and around this psalm give us some clues. Psalm 14 verse 7 and Psalm 17. David's on the run. Maybe it's Saul. David has been promised the kingship, but Saul is determined to get rid of this threat to his throne. He sees David as a a threat to the power that he has in Jerusalem. And so David has to run from Saul. Saul wants to kill him. He wants nothing better than to, to simply remove this threat. So it's no wonder that as David runs from Saul, as he's on the run constantly, dependent on others, dependent on the protection of others, that thoughts of death are in the front of his mind. Thoughts of death fill his mind in the words of our text this morning. And as he's distressed, as he's in this situation of despair, he goes to the only place where he can find refuge. He goes to God himself. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. In you I take refuge. There is no other place for David to go. As he's on the run from Saul, the only place he can find true safety, true protection, true refuge is in God himself. There is none other 
who can help. And so he turns to God, and the remarkable thing is that as he turns to God, his mood changes drastically. He opens with this cry of despair, preserve me, O God, and immediately his mood changes drastically. He speaks little of his difficulties. Apart from this opening cry, we don't get the sense of what his circumstances are like. We move from this short, desperate opening cry to a beautiful confession of confidence, of trust, of joy, and of contentment in God himself. David sings, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Put otherwise, O God, there is no good outside of you. There is nothing good for David outside of his relationship with God. He can go nowhere else to find what he has in God himself. In fact, everything apart from God has no value for David at all. God is his supreme treasure. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. To illustrate this truth, he uses a number of word pictures. He says, In verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. The portion of my inheritance. Now the tribes, when they had come into the land of Israel, they had all received their portion in the land, in the promised land. All the tribes had their space, but each family and each tribe had also been given an inheritance. They all had their special plot in the promised land apart from the Levites. And David too, his family had been given his land And as he grew up, David would have expected as well to receive his portion in the land of of Jesse, his inheritance. But now David's on the run. There's little prospect of him taking up his place on the family land. His own inheritance in Bethlehem must be far from his mind, but it doesn't matter at all. David's earthly inheritance matters little to him at this point because he has a much greater inheritance inheritance. He has a much greater portion. He says, Lord, you are my portion. Lord, you are my inheritance. And with you as my inheritance, with you as my portion, while the lines have fallen in pleasant places indeed. Verse 6, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. This is David's confession. It doesn't matter that he has no physical place to lay his head. It doesn't matter that the prospects of him taking up his place in Bethlehem are slim. Because God is in his inheritance. No amount of land, no amount of wealth, no amount of property, no treasure, no earthly delights can compare to what David has in his God. What an inheritance. The Lord is also David's cup. He says, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The Lord is all David needs from day to day. From day to day, he is fully and truly dependent on God himself. And it's more than enough. As he's on the run from Saul, as he's depending on on friends and those who will give him protection, those who will provide for his daily needs, he thinks nothing of that because God is his cup. God is all that he needs for his daily sustenance, his daily existence. Nothing satisfies like God. Nothing nourishes and sustains like God. He is the only source of life and pleasure. Apart from the Lord, there is no good thing. 
That truth is also illustrated by those who run after other gods. In verse 4, David sings, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Those who pursue the gods of this world will never be satisfied, will never see their needs met. Now, we don't have the same gods as those of David's day, but we have our own gods as well. Those who pursue the gods of this world, their sorrows will be multiplied. The world pursues happiness in so many different places, in entertainment, in wealth, in vacations, in hobbies, in sex, in the bottom of a bottle. There are so many different places that the world is craving after, seeking to find fulfillment, seeking to find happiness and contentment. But they're constantly trying to hit a moving target. They're looking in all the wrong places. Because there's only emptiness to be found when we try to root our contentment and our satisfaction in the things that belong to this world. The same is true for us as much as it is true for those out there. When we try to root our happiness and our contentment in the things of this world, even the good things like family and jobs and church life, when we try to root our contentment in those things, we will constantly be dissatisfied because it's only in God himself that we find we have a good inheritance, that we have all our needs met. Nothing in this world has the capacity to fill the holes in our hearts except God himself. Augustine once wrote, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in you. And David has found in God himself a solid foundation for security and joy and contentment. And so he refuses even to be contaminated in the slightest way by the gods of this world. He says, I'm not even going to take up their names on my lips. These other gods, these other things that people try to root their contentment in, that try to find their happiness in, I'm not even going to speak of them. God is my portion and my cup. See, David's contentment can't be rooted in the fleeting pleasures of this life because it's anchored on a rock that cannot be shaken. His lot is secure. He's confident of his future. He finds joy and contentment in the present because he takes refuge in God himself. He opens with that cry, preserve me, O God. And he finds his answer by meditating what he has in God himself. And so he's moved from this meditation to praise. He says in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. He moves from despair, desperation, to meditating on who he has in God himself. And he moves on to praise and glory. From despair to meditation to glory. David's eyes are fixed always on God himself. Because the one whose eyes are fixed on God himself finds security in the midst of any circumstance, physical or spiritual. The one whose eyes are fixed on the Lord has contentment in every circumstance, physical or spiritual. And so with the Lord at his right hand, David can always also say, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. If God is at your right hand, then what can possibly shake you? What can possibly stand against those who have God as their protection and their refuge and their strength? What reason for joy. And so David moves to praise. 
the opening words of our text, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Or put otherwise, my tongue rejoices. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. David's whole being is given over to glory in God himself. Even in his desperate circumstances, he finds reason to praise God. Because apart from God, there is no good thing. Are these the words on your lips? Is this the song of your heart? Apart from you, Lord, I have no good thing. You, Lord, are my portion and my cup. Lord, with you, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. When we have God as the object of all of our affections and our joys and our securities, then we can also confess with David, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. But surely we fail, don't we? We fail to root all our contentment and our joy and our security in God himself. And David himself failed as well. He sought happiness and joy in the momentary embrace of another man's wife. And we too find ourselves investing in treasures that moth and rust can destroy rather than finding in God himself endless joys and delights. And so we're driven time and again to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. And these words of these texts also point us to Christ, who alone devoted himself, heart and soul, completely and fully to the will of his heavenly Father. Because it's in Christ that we find a perfect Savior. It's in Christ that we receive every good thing. In Christ we have a rock that will not be shaken On Christ, the solid rock, we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. And with our feet firmly planted on that rock, which is Christ, we have every reason for joy and contentment in the present. But then we also have a solid foundation for the future as well. Confidence and security and hope for the future, which we see in the second place. David confesses in verse 10, Or verse 9, my flesh also will rest in hope. My body will rest securely. David's anticipating death. As he's on the run from Saul, he's anticipating that Saul's going to catch up to him, is going to remove this threat to the throne. And yet he has confidence. Yet he has hope. Yet he's filled with joy and contentment. How can this be? Well, first of all, David knows that God will protect him. David knows that God protects those who are his own. David had been promised a throne and a kingdom, and so he trusts in God for protection because God had made him promises, and God fulfills his promises. God would not allow him to go to the grave without fulfilling his promise to the anointed one. He keeps his promises, those promises he has given to you at baptism as well. And David is one of the faithful ones. First, in the first place, he's speaking of himself in verse 10 when he says, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. David is one of the holy ones. He's a faithful one. He's a covenant child. And so he trusts in his covenant God and his covenant father. He won't face death as long as God is his security and his refuge. But David's words have an even deeper meaning 
than this. Somehow, through the Spirit, David looks beyond his own death, his own physical death, and beyond his own grave. When the Apostle Peter quotes these very words at Pentecost in Acts 2 to those people gathered together in Jerusalem, he quotes these very words and he calls David a prophet. Because David's words in, this t- in our text are a remarkable confession of faith. His eyes are firmly fixed on the future. He has faith in the promises of God. He has confidence in the love of God. And so he sings of his hope, his security, his confidence, even in the face of death. Even though his words point to a reality that was yet to come. Because David knew that his body would go into the grave. David knew that once his body was laid in the grave, the physical processes would have their way, that his body would become dust, that his body would decay and break down. And David did die. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors. His body has long since turned to dust. But Sheol, the realm of the dead, the grave was not the end for David. Because his perspective is much greater than the here and now. Much greater than the simple natural processes that happen to our bodies when they're laid in the graves. He's looking to the future. He had been promised an heir who would sit on his throne forever and ever. And that could only be possible if the hold that death had on this world was broken. And so his Hope is fixed on the coming of a son and an heir, on the coming of the Holy One who would defeat death, who would triumph over the grave. With eyes of faith, with what you could call prophetic vision, David looks beyond his own tomb, beyond his own grave, and he sees the reality and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His own body would see corruption. His own body would become dust. But a thousand years after David died, there would be one whose body would never see corruption, whose body would not turn to dust. David looks to the future and he sees an empty tomb. That's the foundation for his hope, his security, his joy, and his contentment in this life. That Sunday morning, Easter morning, The women got up early to go to the tomb to prepare the body with spices. They had been there on Friday night. They had seen Jesus breathe out his last on the cross. They watched the soldier draw his sword. They saw the blood and water flow mingled down. They watched as that broken, bloodied, lifeless body was taken down from the cross. They watched as Joseph of Arimathea wrapped that precious body in linen cloths, gently laid it in a tomb that was cut from a rock. They saw the stone rolled in front of that tomb. They knew their precious master, their precious rabbi had died. The Romans declared him dead. The Pharisees declared him dead. His own disciples declared him dead. Jesus Christ was laid in the grave. He was truly dead. And so that morning, as the women came to the tomb, that Sunday morning, 
with spices and perfumes and tears. They were fully expecting to come upon the dead body of their precious rabbi. They were going to anoint the precious body of their rabbi with spices, fully expecting, too, that when that stone was rolled away, that the processes would have begun their work, that in the Middle Eastern heat, there would have been a smell, the body would have begun to decay. But as they came into that garden, they see the stone rolled away. And as they stoop into that doorway and looked into the tomb, they see that the tomb was empty. The body was not there because Christ had risen. Death had no hold on Jesus Christ. His body would never see decay. His body would never see corruption. This was the reality that David saw in faith. This is the reality that David sung of, where David found his security, his joy, his contentment, and his hope. The grave was not his final destination. Death could not separate him from God because his great son and heir, King Jesus, would triumph over death. The empty tomb, the risen Christ, was the foundation for David's security, his hope, his very existence. And the vision of an empty tomb allowed him to live with confidence and joy. And our outlook is so much more secure. Still more comforting when we consider that what David saw with eyes of faith has become reality. A historical event rooted in history, rooted in time and space. Christ has defeated death. It is finished. Christ has been raised from the dead. Hear the gospel of the empty tomb. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? Our bodies may decay. The bodies of your loved ones may rest in the grave and may have long since turned to dust. But it's not the end. It's not the end because Christ has been raised. Our bodies, too, will be raised. God will not abandon us to the grave or the bodies of our loved ones to the grave. Christ's resurrection was just the beginning. This resurrection perspective changes everything for David. It changes everything for us. Christ's resurrection changes everything. Where once sin and death reigned, in a world where sin and death were inescapable realities because of the curse of sin, in this world, one tomb stands empty. Christ has risen. He's forced open the door that was locked when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And he's given us entrance into a new world. A world where sin and death no longer reign. And where true life is found. This is the path of life that God made clear to David. Verse 11, you show me the path of life. Because true life can only be found in recognizing that there is something beyond the here and now. Beyond what we can see with our physical eyes. Otherwise, it's just, let's eat and drink. 
for tomorrow we die. Then we might as well run after the elusive pleasures of this life. Then we might as well fill ourselves with things that cannot satisfy. Then it's certainly not worth making sacrifices or enduring hardships. Because if Christ has not been raised, then this is as good as it's going to get. But if Christ has been raised, and he has, well, that changes everything. With our eyes fixed on the resurrected Lord, we begin to live life as it was meant to be. We begin to follow the true path of life. Then life here and now is transformed. For us, the resurrection of Christ is not just a future hope, but it's a present reality. When Christ died, we died to sin. When Christ was raised to new life, we were raised to new life as well. Good Friday and Easter is your story. That's the truth. As Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. John 10. When we fix our eyes on the risen Lord, when we believe in him, we begin to enjoy the benefits of this kind of life already, here and now. We have no good thing apart from Jesus Christ. That's the path of life that's made known to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's finding joy and contentment in considering everything else a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. It's finding in Christ your supreme treasure. It's finding in Christ your portion, your cup, your inheritance. It's forsaking everything else and seizing hold of Jesus Christ by faith and finding in him every good thing. It's finding in him all joy, all contentment, all pleasure, and laying aside the emptiness of this world. It's also facing the joy, the prospect of sharing in his resurrection, because that's ultimately where David leads us as well in the final words of our text. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we may be convinced, convicted, certain that our bodies too will be raised. That when we are united by, to him by faith, we too will experience the resurrection. It's guaranteed. Christ the King in heaven is proof. We celebrated the ascension on Thursday. That's the proof you need. Christ with his body, is on the throne. Our flesh in heaven as a pledge of our own glorious resurrection. And so a glorious future awaits. Fullness of joy in God's presence. Pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Though our bodies be laid in the grave and become dust, they will be raised and reunited with our souls, and we will dwell with God. The dwelling of God will be with men. We will sing and laugh and run and leap and dance in the presence of God himself with unimaginable joy, with transformed and resurrected bodies. We will never stop delighting in the pleasures that come from the hand of God himself. 
Then we will truly experience what it is to know every good thing from the God of heaven. Eternal pleasures are offered to you in Jesus Christ. Eternal pleasures. How can we continue to pretend as though this is all there is when eternal pleasures are offered to us in Jesus Christ? How can we continue to invest all our time and our effort and our energy into making sure that this life is as good as it can be when we are offered eternal pleasures in the risen Christ? One theologian put it this way, we find ourselves fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Eternal pleasures are offered to you in Jesus Christ. The future is glorious for those who are in Christ Jesus. Eternal pleasures at God's right hand, fullness of joy in God's presence. That's the future that David holds before our eyes this morning in the closing words of our text. It's a future that was secured on Easter morning some 2,000 years ago. There is an empty tomb somewhere in Jerusalem. And because that tomb remains empty, we may look with confidence and joy to the future. When all tombs will be emptied, when bodies will be resurrected, joined with souls and transformed to look like our Savior, Jesus Christ, then we will enjoy eternal pleasures, fullness of joy, a new world without suffering, without pain, without death, perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Because Christ has risen. Hallelujah. Amen.